in the cloud. All right. Well, good, good afternoon slash morning, given that we're operating in two different time zones here, right around the lunch hour. So this is Michael Vandervoort in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where it's 11 o'clock-ish, and John Hyman on the other side of the time zone in the Mississippi in Cleveland. John, how you doing today? Welcome back to uh, back to Drive Through and Labor Relatedly. Yeah, man, it's it's been a bit. It's uh, We've been uh, in, independently busy, you with your move, and I think me with just... Um me with just life but it's good it's good to be back together virtually yeah likewise it yeah it's uh, and we, we took a minute to catch up uh, in the pre-show so that was good but we'll we'll kind of yeah i uh, as as most folks know i i switched jobs recently and moved to tulsa so i'm i'm out going on a month in the city and so far so good you know i don't spend a lot of time there but uh it, it's great it's been great to be here and me the dog uh the intern sugar uh was named uh, dog of the month at her new kennel that she goes look to at, there look every day. At that. <laughs> so that was pretty fun. Uh, she, she's, she's also been here a month and uh, she got named the April dog of the month and they have a cute picture of her posted up on the wall that everybody gets to see every day. So that's fun. Wow. Anyway. I, I, I have the, I have the, the opposite experience. One of my dogs, we, we had to scale back doggy daycare. One of my dogs um, was asked not to come quite as often oh. to doggy daycare, which is uh, not his, I, I think the situation's being, I, I think they're misreading him. He tends to, when he wants to be left alone, he, he gets a little grumpy. Yeah. And I think they're misreading it as he might he might show some aggression towards another dog. And I think they're just, I, I think they're just misreading the situation because he's a sweet boy and he wouldn't hurt anybody. So, um, but he's yeah. now down to, he's now down to both, both of my dogs because they're a pair. They're down to, they're down to two days a week at doggy daycare. So well, she's <laughs> five days three. a week unless I unless I work from home and I haven't been doing a lot of that in these early days. So uh so she's five days a week and actually it's been good for her. It gets her, you know, it socializes her and gets her exercise and all that kind of stuff. Right. You know? Right, anyway. right. All right. Well, we didn't pets are pets are important, but that's not what the show's about. So we'll switch back to the real uh, the real topic. So this is episode number 10 of our periodic uh show labor relatedly that we lie under the drive-through HR banner. And there, we've got a couple couple three different things we're going to talk about today. Uh, one is a really big development with, uh, I don't know, huge implications to literally every employer in the United States. Doesn't matter if you're unionized or not. Doesn't matter if you're pri private sector or what industry you're in. It's going to apply to you at some point if you uh, if you try to do any kind of severance agreement. So let's, let's start with that. Why don't you kind of outline the what, what's gone on and sort of the developments, John? Yeah, so... The case we're talking about is McLaren Macomb, which is now, I don't know, maybe six weeks old. And it it kind of feels like old news at this point because it's been out since, I don't know, mid to late February, but it's still worthy of talking about because the NLRB in that case said that what I'm going to call garden variety confidentiality and non-disparagement clauses. That is, you'll keep this agreement confidential, the terms of the agreement confidential, and you won't say anything bad about us. Those clauses that we as management side representatives uh, often put in uh, often put in separation agreements, the National Labor Relations Board concluded that they both uh, violate uh, employees' rights under Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act, 
because they, according to the board, both of those provisions have the, or can be reasonably interpreted to uh, chill employees from talking about wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment. And we all then, as you know, the, the internet exploded, um, every law firm in the country um, that has a labor and employment practice, including mine, put out a client alert saying, uh, beware, this is what the NLRB just said. And then we went to kind of figuring out how we're going to rewrite, um, how we're going to rewrite separation agreements for employees uh, for um, non-supervisory. So employees not covered by the National Labor Relations Act, how we're going to rewrite separation agreements to account for this new landscape set forth by the McLaren-McComb decision. Um, and, you know, we thought about things like savings clauses, you know, can we put disclaimers in agreements to let employees know this doesn't apply to Section 7 rights? Um, can we narrow the scope of confidentiality and non-disparagement clauses, et cetera? Um, and as we were all in the process of doing these things for our clients, uh, we got uh, or I saw a tickler that uh, Jennifer Bruzzo, the NLRB's current general counsel, said, um, you know, we're getting all these questions. Stay tuned. I'm going to put out a, a policy memo or some policy guidance giving you all my interpretation of McLaren-McComb. And we kind of know where Jen Abruzzo kind of falls on the spectrum of labor management rights, and it's kind of left of left. And so we all we all kind of braced ourselves for what her policy memo or guidance memo was going to say, and then it was I think uh, uh, we'd all agree it was probably it was probably way worse than we thought it was going to be, and so we are really in now a whole new world of kind of what do you know what do severance agreements what do separation agreements look like when you're separating uh when you're separating an employee and trying to get them to promise not to sue you on the way out the door it's it's really it's it's an entire new landscape for these things yeah so 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 there are a couple couple three i mean there's there's all sorts of implications here but there there are a couple three that for the purposes of our conversation and you know if you if you have a law firm they they sent you a memo you should go probably read that memo and you know, you if you're if you're doing layoffs, you know, look at your layoff policy, check your handbook. All I mean, check your agreements because they're they're uh, the first one though. They I, I, I would just say if if you're working with a law firm and they didn't send you an update on this, it's time for it's time for change, a new law firm. Change law firms. <laughs> so so, but one of the one of the big things is in the in the memo that she put out, you know, that left of left of left memo or whatever you want to call it, was not only that did she provide you know some guidelines. Um, that in some ways, you know, she, I mean, she leaned heavily into like section seven, but only certain elements of it, which we'll get to in a minute, right? She didn't, she didn't talk about the right to refrain or anything like that. What if you, what if you choose not to engage in protected concerted activity, which is a right as employees have, we'll go there. The, she took an even bigger swing, which just blew us away here at LRI, which was the fact that she not only basically said, you know, yeah, severance agreements going forward are de facto ULPs, if it includes any kind of language that chills Section 7 rights, but it's it's also, a, it's retroactive, going back at least six months, and essentially, well, in and some ways, forever, right? She said it goes back in perpetuity, because these are continuing violations. Yeah. yeah. And so, 
you know, when I was thinking through this and I actually talked to a reporter at CNN about this when the, the day or two after the, the, the decision came out back in February, and I was like, you know, even if we don't think this is retroactive, but even if it is, like the look back is only going to be six months. So employers should have a lot of confidence that any severance agreement that was signed more than six months ago um, is safe. And Abruzzo basically said, no, these, these are continuing violations because these confidentiality and non-disparagement covenants kind of exist in perpetuity. They don't have a time link to them. And so therefore, every time someone refrains from telling a coworker about what's in a separation agreement or refrains from saying something nasty about their former employer, that just re-triggers the statute as a continuing violation. And so that is that basically means every severance agreement ever signed from the beginning of time that contains a confidentiality or non-disparagement clause is presumptively in violation of Section 7, which is a scary, scary, scary thought. And because it, I mean, employers have paid out, you know, various sums of money under many different circumstances with the idea that they were paying at in the moment for a release of all future claims and and charges yeah in in the you know for lots of different reasons age you know all sorts of discrimination et cetera et cetera right i mean and, and now all that stuff is at least theoretically in it's, the wind i mean theoretically at least at risk sure um you know and i i, I would i think the untold story and it's, maybe it's not as un, maybe it's not untold maybe the the underappreciated story here is the impact on these agreements moving forward. Because I can make a really good argument, particularly when you perceive a risk as being slim for a claim. Like it's a, you know, white guy under 40, no disabilities, no complaints about, you know, no complaints about anything. They were just an employee that just didn't work out and you're going to separate them, but you're giving them a severance package because you are you know, you want to create some goodwill on the way out the door and you're trying to provide someone a soft landing and all the reasons why you might give someone a separation agreement and package some money, even though you don't perceive the risk of a claim as being really, as particularly great. A lot of what you're paying for is, number one, we're going to give you this money, but we really don't want you going telling, telling everyone how much we're giving you because we don't want to create there's no contractual right to severance in, in almost all cases. So we don't want to create an expectation across the workforce that if you leave, this is what you're going to get. And we don't, we don't want whatever your experience was, we're trying to buy some goodwill. But if we can't do that, we don't want you going on Google, Facebook, Glassdoor, Indeed, whatever, and writing nasty things about us as a company. And that's what you're paying for as an employer. And in exchange, you're getting this signed agreement back with those covenants. And I, I, I can make a really, really good argument that the unintended consequence of both this decision and especially this, 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 this guidance memo is that it's going to result in a significant decrease, diminution in the value of severance packages moving forward because employers are just not going to get the same benefit of the bargain that they got before um, before the McLaren McComb decision came out on February 21st. Right. Because the value is diminished. They, she's a son. I mean, the, the, why pay money that can't, that doesn't protect you. I mean, it, I mean, some people will say we should pay the money because it's the decent employer, you know, you should provide a safety net, blah, blah, blah. And that's true in, in a lot of, but, but 
it's a quid pro quo as well, right? So, it, I mean, anyway, um, I wanted to kind of just take a moment. So, like under Section Seven, one of the the theory that applies here, I guess I won't. I don't want to put. Uh, I don't know what a Bruzo's theory is just specifically, but the, the general theory. <laughs> if that, you figure it out, let me know. Yeah, the general theory <laughs> that applies here is that Section Seven allows people to talk about things like wages or severance agreements and compare notes. Right? I can go to you. You know, we're both laid off. We both sign agreements even though they say we won't talk under section seven we have the right to get together and compare notes and kind of reassure each other did you get more than me you know what did they give you john you know to make sure that we're not being essentially that we're not being screwed by by somebody you know based on all the things that you could be discriminated against or you know that somebody didn't get double or whatever it is right, right. that's the theory that's what that's what she's trying to prevent but the other side of that is I also have a right under Section 7 not to do that. Like I I can, I have you and any other employee who's covered by Section 7 of the National Relations Act has the right to say, I, I'm good. I, I'm, I'm happy with what I got. I'm not going to tell you, right? And, and, and that's legal. Yep. But, she, but, the, but the case decision and the, and the, the you know, the follow-up follow memo and guidance completely ignores that. Yeah. It, it it focuses solely on the right that you can't do this and ignores the what if I choose not to do it anyway, which is also right. a protected right. And it just completely skirts that uh, piece of the section seven equation. Absolutely. So if you're if so they may believe that they're do they're you know that this is for the greater good or whatever, right? That you know, this you know, and that people, but but it the 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 unintended consequence or or maybe the intended consequence, I don't know is what you said, which is that it, it's going to deprive people of the ability to gain, um, to, to take, to not to negotiate, because most employers don't negotiate these things, some do, I guess, but to uh, obtain a, a, a thing of financial value um, by, by deciding how they want to exercise their rights under Section 7, which is, you know, so it deprives them of some potential severance pay, which is security as you go through a job search, which in days like this can be long at times and uncertain, right? And so, yeah. so and, you know, and, and what, yeah, and, and there is and there is a group of employees, probably it's probably a larger group of employees who are gonna say, what what if a coworker was to come to someone and say, like, oh, what what was in your severance package? How much are they giving you? I, I would venture to bet if you did a survey of terminated employees who were offered severance. The number of employees who respond to that question is that's really personal or private information or it's none of your business or whatever is a lot larger than, oh, the company gave me four weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks or whatever. But but the the net result or the, the, the result of this decision is even for the employees who would never disclose what's in a severance package, because they're going to say that's private, it's none of your business. What I make is my, you know, is personal to me and not for you. They're their severance packages are going to be cut by the same amount as everyone else's because the employer, because the value is just not there for employers moving forward. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really dangerous decision, not just employers, but I would argue for employees as well. Well, and I think another point that, that they missed is that, you know, for in whatever their zeal is to, to protect the, the section seven, right. Is that these types of these types of agreements have been around for I don't know decades? I mean, certainly, I mean, I've been doing them since the '90s. On a you know, I haven't done layoffs in a while, but we've been doing them since the '80s and '90s on a regular basis. And 
there are, you know, there they, they don't have, they don't just cover Section Seven claims. They cover age discrimination and many other types of claims that you sign off on as part of the legal releases. But there's a whole there's a whole s s slate of laws beyond the NLRA that govern how you offer these things out. And you can't just kind of willy. I mean, some companies always will. Some companies will always break the rules. But generally speaking, you just can't kind of willy nilly offer people, you know, whatever you think they'll take on a on a non you know sort of on an unequal basis because you're going to get yourself in all kinds of legal problems for you know age discrimination or you know so you know there's there's a lot of things that make consistency and application equal application here required under this process so it, they're just kind of they're really messing with kind of a a basic business practice that it's not going to help the businesses or the employees who are suffering the layoffs and so it's yeah. really it's really you know, and, puzzling. And for, for, for years, like I've put language in severance agreements that says, you know, something to the effect of, uh, you know, this, you know, the, this release and waiver does not apply to claims that, you know, the, the claims that cannot be legally released and waived and which, for, and I've even put in, you know, including, you know, the right to file a charge with the, with the EEOC or the National Labor Relations Board. Um, you can waive monetary relief that would come from those, but you can't, you can't have an employee release the right to bring a, a violation of federal law to a federal right. agency and have a federal agency do with it whatever they're going to do with it. Right. So I've oh, had that sure. language. In, yeah, I've had that yeah. language in, in, in agreements forever. And the NLRB here, at least as this as the decision is being interpreted by uh, by Jen Abruzzo, just completely eviscerates that yeah. um, and basically says, yeah, the, you, you can't. You can't disclaim anything here unless you give this employees this laundry list of rights that they have under the National Labor Relations Act, including the right to form a union, which is irrelevant now because they don't work there anymore. Um, uh, you know, the, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like eight or nine or ten bullet points she wants included, and every you know every company I've talked to to say this is what the board says you need to put in your agreement in order for a disclaimer to pass muster. I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not telling employees they have the right that I'm not doing that. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's it, employers are really in a difficult spot here. And maybe, and maybe the answer is we just wait for this to get to a federal court of appeals because I can't see this holding up once it gets there. Um, but that's still, but we're still going to be in a, you know, a 12 to 18 month limbo until we get, until we start to get uh, appellate decisions that will hopefully undo what, undo what the NLR, do, what the NLRB you, did here. Do you see the whole thing coming undone or do you just see it being dialed back? Um, that's a really good question. I would like to think the whole thing is going to be undone. I think it would depend on what court this goes to. Yeah. I think I looked at this and I believe this decision came out of, and I don't know the, I don't know the region, but I, I don't know the region number, but I believe it came out of the Detroit area, which means, yeah, I it, think, would, which I means think it would go right. to the, which means it would go to the sixth circuit, um, which I'm intimately familiar with because that's <laughs> where I am here in Ohio. And uh, the sixth circuit, um, particularly in the last uh, uh, 10 years ago, I would have told you, um, it was one of the more liberal circuits. Now the Sixth Circuit tends to skew more conservatively, and I I could see the Sixth Circuit undoing this whole thing. Interesting. 
I think there are, um, so there's the, the takings clause in the constitution might apply here as well. I, I know we don't want to go too far into constitutional well, there's, law. I mean, there's freedom. I'm not a, um, yeah. not a constitutional lawyer. I just play one on Twitter, but um, yeah, but there's the, I mean, there's the freedom of the, the freedom of contract is in the, is, is a, a right protected by the constitution. And this just completely um, ignores that, uh, you know, so what, what happened to the, I mean, it's not like, it's not like employers are having employees sign these agreements and the employees aren't getting something for their signature. I mean, they're getting right. paid money they're not otherwise entitled to get, right? right? Sometimes substantial money they're not otherwise entitled to get. And, and that piece of it is being completely ignored. And, and I understand that there is a, there's always going to be an unequalness of bargaining power in the employer-employee relationship. And, and I understand that. But by the same token, um, and that might here that might reflect itself in well, this is the agreement, and um, we're not going to negotiate terms, we're not going to negotiate money. So I get the unequalness of bargaining power argument, but at the end of the day, you still have an employee who is losing their job, who is not entitled to you know, dime one after you know, you know post termination, and an employer for whatever reason is giving them significant compensation for weeks or months um, after the termination of their employment. And I, I think they should be entitled to get something in exchange for that. They're not doing it out of the goodness of their own heart. They're doing it because they 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 want something from the employee. If they didn't want something, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be severance agreements. Yeah. And so and this this decision completely ignores the the fact that you have two willing parties entering into a contract here. And I think, um, and I think that, and I think the constitution might have something to say about that when this gets into the courts. Yeah. And the, and if, if one were a, a, a conspiracy theorist, which I generally am not, but you could, I, I can play one on TV like you or on Twitter. Um, one could argue that this could be seen as a, as a ploy to kind of drive uh, employers and employees, to, you know, into the arms of collective bargaining, right? Because you can, you, it, unions in theory could negotiate these benefits and they would come under, they would be, you know, visible in the light of day under the process, negotiations process, et cetera, et cetera. So that might, you know, fit into a board theory. But the, but the truth is, if you're an, at a, if you're a union employer or a union employee at a unionized company, and the company decides to do a layoff, um, they're, the company's obligated to, to, to notify you. The company's, uh, if you're closing a facility, the company's obligated to, to, to negotiate over both the decision and the effects, but they're not obligated to give you any severance pay at all. Correct. Unless, unless, out, it's, out, out, unless it's already negotiated in the collective bargaining agreement. That's right. 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 Yeah. Or if it, or if there's, I, it, I guess maybe there's a few states where there might be some more notice pay applicable depending on the circuit. I mean, you know, it's, it's not, that's not a universal statement. So, so the idea that somehow unions would do a better job with this process really is not applicable here. And I, I mean, I've done all this stuff many, many times. I'm sure you have in my career and it's just, it's just not the way it works. So not even that conspiracy theory doesn't really explain exactly what they're trying to do here other than be able to give people the right to talk and lose some lose some money when they don't have a job which yeah. seems like a non-winning uh, sort of uh, equation to me so yeah some of whom may not want to talk in the first place and and yeah and and the same and the same with the non-disparagement piece i mean 
we can talk about whether or not disparagement clauses in general make sense when the law already prohibits people from doing things that non-disparagement clauses usually say. So I think that's, that is a lesser impact here, but the large subset of employees are not going to go on the internet and trash their company on the way out the door. It's, it's not, it's not good for employability. It's not good for hireability. Um, it, it makes you look toxic. There's all kinds of reasons why people don't want to do those things. And it's a very, very small subset of people who are going to go online and just spew just malicious, awful untruths about their former employer. Um, and yet this, this decision impacts them as well, the same as it impacts the employees that aren't going to, aren't going to talk about how much they got in a severance package. And it's just, it, it's, it's just, it is, it is, as, as I often think is the case, it is a, there's a fundamental disconnect between government government agencies that regulate the workplace and what it actually means to like work in a work in a workplace or manage a workplace for a living and this is just i think a a gross misunderstanding of just kind of what happens when someone is terminated from a job and what benefits are are being offered to them and what they're being asked to give in return it's just a misunderstanding of that entire process in the name of just pushing forth the, you know, a, 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 a pro section seven agenda. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So in the, in the spirit of uh, Cisco and Ebert, we give it two thumbs down. We're not fans of this. So big thumbs down. <laughs> I don't know how many thumbs they used to give or stars or whatever. I got, I got, I got two right here. Yeah. So uh, it, it, and <laughs> who's got, who's got two, who's got two thumbs and hates the, hates this decision. Yeah. This guy. Most, and, and most employers as well, I would say. Um, I want to pivot to a couple things. Uh, one, we talked about um, last time we did a show, which was like eons ago. Uh, I'm still living in Florida, which was the creature comforts uh, union uh, independent union campaign that had started there. there that's, gone pretty slowly but I I, uh, I I looked and didn't see much but you said you had you heard of a development so why don't you give us a quick update about what we what's going on there if anything yeah so it, it has been slow the petition was filed a couple months ago that shortly at the end of January within days of the petition uh, the election petition being filed by the union there were three unfair labor practice charges filed um based on some perceived either comments made to employees or perceived retaliation against uh, employees that supported the union. And uh, the, the trail the trail went cold after that. I mean, it's been a couple of months, no, no election has been um, held, let alone ordered. There is very little, very little if any docket activity um, on the unfair labor practice charges. Um, and then um, I was uh, on Instagram a couple of days ago. I follow the uh, Brewing Union of Georgia, which is the independent union here, Bug, as they call themselves, um, on Instagram. And then it showed up in my feed um, a, a post that says, we have filed our fourth unfair labor practice charge against Creature Comforts, what you need to know. And then it details. So this was March. Uh, this was yesterday. This post went live. Uh, but they filed the charge, um, and they filed the charge yesterday. Um, but essentially, they say that um, the brewery suspended um, two union-supporting employees um, for reasons unknown, um, told them they were under investigation, wouldn't tell them why, 
um, ordered them not to talk to any coworkers during the investigation, um, sent them home. Um, they said they've ordered, uh, they had police escort them off the premises and then further had police uh, come check on them at their homes under what they're saying was a welfare check. Um, there's a lot of, we don't know here um, <laughs> in terms of, right? Like why, why are you sending, yeah. what happened that sent causing you to send law enforcement for a welfare check to employees' homes? Right. Which is um, not something you do very often. No, yeah. no, no, no. Um, I think I've done it uh, once, I think, um, in the 25 years I've practiced law, I've recommended that a client send, uh, law enforcement out to someone and, and to an employee's home to do a welfare check. Um, so, and that's all we know. Um, and, but clearly, um, the campaign, uh, has not gone away. They've, at least in their, in their social posts, their, um, the union has made three demands um, they've demanded the immediate reinstatement of the two employees, and it doesn't appear they've been terminated. They've been suspended, but they want the two the two employees brought back to work. Um, they want a public apology, and then three stop <laughs> stop union busting. So, um, you know, from the specific down to the general. So, um, that's uh, that's all we know right now. Um, they say that there are some public. Uh, uh, public actions that are coming and they're asking for support. It looks like there might be some some pickets or some protests that are on the horizon down in Athens, Georgia. But it's certainly as particularly as I'm gearing up for the National Craft Brewers Conference in Nashville, um, the second week of May, um, I am I am curious to see there is nothing on the agenda in regards to uh, union activity at all on the conference agenda. Uh, there was some counter-programming. I wasn't at the conference last year in Minneapolis, but there was some counter-programming that some uh, trade organizations and um, publications put on that at least some of which covered unionization in the craft brewing industry. I'm curious to see uh, and hear kind of what is being talked about down there this year particularly in light of what's going on at Creature Comforts, because this, this, this campaign wasn't happening last year. There were really no, no active campaigns in the brewing space. It was just kind of being talked about. And now we have at least one active campaign. So I'm curious to hear uh, from the people I interact with down at the conference, um, kind of what their thoughts are and where people think this is going to go in our industry. Well, we'll have to pencil in uh, a date in mid-May um, once that's over, because I'll have just been to uh, Q. I'm presenting at Q on uh, responding to hotspots and in, uh, it, you know, engagement issues. And uh, are you presenting at the Craft Brewers? I, I am. I was presenting twice. I'm doing, so they have a pre-conference event called Thrive, which is, eight, which is solely HR focused. And I'm doing a uh, a presentation there with uh, a consultant by the name of Ren Navarro. We're talking on um, disability access rights uh, in breweries. That's going to cover both kind of rights of employees or how breweries make themselves more, I guess the topic really is how do breweries make themselves more inclusive for the disabled. So mm -hmm. it'll touch on both uh, reasonable accommodations for employees and then uh, for customers and patrons as well and accessibility for customers and patrons. And then during the main conference, uh, I'm doing a session on uh, how to legally and correctly uh, pay tipped workers. Nice. Well, we'll have to do a show about kind of like our conference experience and learnings. We can we can that'll Perfect. that'll make a nice agenda. Um, 
So I was in a conversation last week with someone where we were talking about diversity and inclusion stuff, and they brought up the concept of belonging as one of the new, kind of the newly evolving things um, that they cover under their DEI. So they actually have a DEIB kind of initiative going on, which I thought was, and I've seen this before, but it was interesting to hear the take, which is not only are we trying to make a place where people feel that they belong, but we're also working really hard on making our workplace a place where people don't feel excluded by you know, beer or things, right? Because yeah. there's, a, there's a beer story that we're going to pivot to here that you have some personal, uh, some weird non-belonging kind of things going on. So you uh, so you, you posted a, a few things of, uh, this week uh, going into the trans day of visibility. You had, a I think, two days of posts and then maybe a third. You want to yeah. kind of tell us a little bit about what a, you've been, been a, dealing with? It's been, a, it's been a weird week on LinkedIn. So, yeah, um, yeah so... Uh, coming off of Trans Day of Visibility, um, the uh, EEOC announced that it filed a lawsuit against a pizzeria in, uh, I think it was in the Buffalo area, in upstate New York, um, on behalf of a transgender male who alleged some pretty awful harassment. He was, um, says, you know, he was repeatedly told by coworkers and management, like, you're not a real man. Do you have female parts? Um he was, uh, they intentionally, his coworkers and management intentionally misgendered him by using female pronouns. They accused him of being a pedophile. You know, you're trans, you know, you're trans, you must be a pedophile, things like that. So the EEOC um, filed a lawsuit against this pizzeria and on behalf of this individual and then press released it as they do when they file lawsuits. And, and I thought it was a timely topic given uh, Transgender Day of Visibility had just passed um, and then I, I kind of coupled that with um, some just statistics about the mistreatment of transgender individuals in the workplace. And, and so that was Monday and said, stay tuned tomorrow. I'll, I'll come back with some kind of just practical pointers about how we can help our workplaces be more, uh, more inclusive um, for our, for transgender workers. And so I did that on Tuesday. I came with five, um, you know, fairly innocuous, but helpful um, uh, tip, uh, 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 things that businesses can do to help become more inclusive. And that's when things, um, that's when things went off the rails. Um, uh, for me, at least the posts, uh, the, the comments, some of the comments on that posts started to, um, you know, take, you know, you're, you're infringing on my religious freedoms, you know, what about, you know, what about the children in Nashville that got kid, you know, that got shot by that transgender person? Um, you know, what about, you know, what about my right to be Christian, that kind of stuff. And then Tuesday afternoon, my phone rang uh, from an anonymous phone number. And uh, all right, I'm, I'm okay to, I'm, I'm okay to swear on our podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always ask. Um, I figure we're all adults. So I answer the phone and I say hello, and someone in a in a loud but gruff voice just yells, dirty faggot loving motherfucker. And before I could even say anything, the line went dead. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. So I just spent two days posting, um, you know, and because I have a large network, my posts do tend to get traction on mm -hmm. LinkedIn um, and get seen. But I just spent two days posting about um, transgender rights issues. And then I get this phone call. And so, um, I, yeah, so I took that, I took that story, um, 
I took that story to LinkedIn as well. Um, and that generated some interesting, um, some interesting responses um, as well in terms of, you know, people just, I, I will say the, the responses have lar- largely, I mean, 98% uh, positive and supportive. And you have the 2% minority who are, um, you know, you're protecting pedophiles, um, you know, you're protecting doctors that mutilate children's genitalia. Um, what about those poor children that got murdered in Nashville? Um, you know, what about the Christians? You're infringing my, you're, you're infringing on my religious liberties because my religion believes that this is, you know, that this is a sin or this is immoral or whatever. And and so it's, it's been a, it's been a week. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I, I just, I mean, I, I understand that it's a triggering kind of, and I, I know a lot of people hate that word, but it's a triggering type of issue for folks. And it's certainly being whipped up in the, you know, in the echo chambers and the, the, the legislative chambers, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just amazing how, you know, like you're not infringing on anyone's religion <laughs> or you're, you're just sharing your opinion. Right. And yeah. It's not- I mean, look, I could, we, we, we can have, uh, uh, we should be able to have an honest discussion about um, the, uh, the bona fides of a faith that will exclude based on someone's sexuality. I think that's a legitimate discussion. Um, but I'm not telling you not to be Christian. Um, right. They're, 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 I mean, people are actively, so there, there are states that are actively trying to legislate transgender people out of existence. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you are, you are not, you are, there are people that are trying to deny other people the right to live the authentic life with the gender that they honestly believe they are. And I just, I, I, it just, it just baffles my mind. I mean, I, I personally know a physician um, who's received, who's received death threats because she provides gender affirming care to, um, to transgender um, adolescents. Uh, It is, it is really, it is really scary times out there. And I just, to me, and and I know I'm a liberal, I wear it on my sleeve. I, but I just don't, I I just don't understand why any of us care what clothes people wear, what pronouns people use, or what bathrooms people use. I just, I just don't, I just don't get it. And I, I believe I, I strongly believe, I believe a couple of things. I believe number one, this is largely a generational issue. And that, because I look at my kids and their friends who think of this totally differently than our peers, some of our peers think of this issue. And so I believe that when today's uh, Gen Z grows up and takes over the world, I think this will largely be a not, I, I think this will largely be a non-issue. Yeah. I also think that once this becomes a non-issue, I think we're going to look back on the way governments of you know some people in government and or some governments treated um, LGBT individuals today. I think we're going to look back at that with the same disgust as we look back on um, you know like those people that opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mm. It's uh, what boggles my mind, I guess, is the fact that because you have an opinion that different from theirs, people perceive this as somehow your that your beliefs are aimed at them, 
and their beliefs. I mean, it, that it's not pie, right? You're not stealing their slice of pie. I know that's a meme, but it no, it's the, no, it's the truth though. It's that's a great, it's a great analogy. Yeah, I mean, right? Like, yeah, but beliefs aren't a pizza. Like, we can all <laughs> there's room, there's room for all of it, right? Right, and we should be able to talk about it. And unfortunately, we don't, and so we fail at the belonging, the DEIB. Yeah, and it's yeah. and part of it is part of it is a function of the polarized society that we live in because everything is everything is me versus you. And if, you know, and if you're, if you're quote unquote, woke, if you're quote unquote woke, then there's, then you have no room for me and I have no room for you. And, right. and, and I, I, I don't understand it, but I see it. Um, it's just, yeah, you can, you can believe whatever you want to believe. I'm not going to tell you how to believe, but when you, but when you're, when you act on those beliefs, to try to harm someone else physically or mentally. And there's a lot of mental health issues that, that are that are in play here. When you act on those beliefs by harassing, by bullying, by supporting legislation that denies someone's right to exist, when you act on those beliefs, that's where I have an issue. Like you, you can be racist, right? I, I that's that's I'm not gonna tell you you can't be racist. There's you can be, you can't act on it. And there's a huge difference. And there's no better role model than the transphobic, homophobic, anonymous caller who hangs up from a prank call like it's third grade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So, yeah. Anyway, so I, I could insult more, but I won't. Um, last thing, um, we'll wrap up. The the uh, there was a uh, I think we're seeing the the beginning of an uh, of a new development in the Starbucks campaign. And I know we had one of these a while back and it, we're kind of in the same situation here. And, and what I'm referring to is there was a petition filed on RD petition, which is a decertification petition filed with the board earlier this week by uh, by the uh, Starbucks uh, location in Augusta, Georgia, which uh, unionized just about a year ago. It was actually slightly less than a year ago. They came in a little bit too early in the in the technical window period to file, legitimately make their filing. But they filed the, the some employees there um, filed to have the union uh, have an election to have the union removed, and this is the second time that this has happened. The first time was about six months ago in Oklahoma City, and it was way early. So we'll see what happens. But um, have you have you got thoughts on these certs and where Starbucks is going? And I guess also Luca and the Howard Schultz uh, testimony that we heard last week. Yeah, well, what a what a what a show that was. Um... I think the Starbucks employees, the, 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 and again, these are, you know, largely independent, these are independent unions. This is employee driven. This isn't big union coming in and organizing here. The, the employees are learning that there is a vast difference between um, organizing for a campaign and voting for a union and getting that first contract. And the latter is so much harder than the former is getting that first contract. And employees are learning that the hard way and what they're seeing is particularly in an organization as large as Starbucks, right? So you're now, you're voted in, you're in bargaining, you're trying to get to that first contract, and Starbucks is still operating its business nationwide. And they're rolling out new benefit plans, and they're giving wage, they're giving wage increases, and they're doing lots of things for their employees nationwide to keep them engaged. But they can't do those things for the stores that have unionized because that's that's it's an unfair labor practice at that point because you're in bargaining that has to be collectively bargained. So they can't give you the same wage increase. They can't give you the same benefits. They can't give you the same time off or educational, you know, benefits or 401k, whatever Starbucks is doing for the 
you know, for the thousands and thousands and thousands of workers that have not voted to organize. And these employees, as they're struggling to negotiate that first agreement with Starbucks, because it's a difficult thing to do, and they're, and they're also not experienced at doing this, um, they're looking at their coworkers, maybe their coworkers in a store down the street um, that hasn't organized and are saying, or across town, and saying, why are they getting X and we're not? And it's, well, because you voted to unionize and we can't give it to you. And it's, and it's, and they're, and they're learning this lesson the hard way. And I think they're, and I think they're, they're having, they're starting to have buyer's remorse. Yeah. I would, I would not be surprised. Uh, talked about this a little bit on Facebook and LinkedIn and conversations and threads there. Um, would not be surprised to see this become a, a, re, a, re, a regular recurring thing, kind of like what we saw with the, maybe not as aggressively as the petitions were a year, year and a half ago, but I, I definitely think we'll start to see this become a trend through the rest of 2023, where people, as you said, have remorse and are trying to go back because um, they probably are realizing that if they, if they uh, decertify the union, then Starbucks is likely to give them the, the benefits that they've granted to all the non-union places. And, you know, and they're not getting it through the collective bargaining process. So it's uh, it's not it's not rolling out at all like they anticipated. Right, and of course, Starbucks the, the the union the union will argue you know those those they they have argued that those wage increases the benefits they're unfair labor practices. But Starbucks can't. I mean, they shouldn't be. They still have a business to run, and they shouldn't be expected to just put a national wage freeze in place. For example, just because some of their stores voted to unionize, that's not a that's not a realistic expectation uh, to place on a on a, uh, a national employer, the scope of Starbucks. Right. Well, and in, in, in the hearing with uh, Howard Schultz last week, some one of the members of Congress, I don't remember who it was because I was kind of listening while I was doing other things. Uh, somebody brought up the point that they could, that Starbucks could grant these wages, that the union had literally written a letter waiving the, any, any demands to negotiate and that they would be willing to accept that wage increase in total, you know, that done deal, right? Just give it to us. The thing that, that thing is, Starbucks as a as a as a negotiator of a, a a whole what needs to be if they ever implement one a fully implemented collective bargaining agreement can't afford to negotiate it one item at a time spread out over months and months and months and months because that's a key piece of leverage of what they would negotiate so they're not going to agree to that singular that singular demand um, in the context that they have going on right now, because it's not to their advantage and they're not legally required to do so, right. despite what Congress, I know, I'm, I realize I'm preaching to the choir sharing it, but I, I say that for our listeners' benefit, right? Uh, it doesn't make sense for Starbucks to do that at all. So so do you have a prediction out of the, what, 300 or so stores that have organized um, or voted to organize, how many will actually negotiate, successfully negotiate a first contract? Uh I honestly think it's zero. I, I think you're right. Um, I was I was going to hedge my bets and say there's one store that isn't in that 300. There's one in Canada that might all there's that has filed. I forget what province it's in, but they they might actually negotiate one because there is a store in Canada right now. One Starbucks store has a collective bargaining agreement, like in Winnipeg or something. But that's the only Starbucks with a contract um, in the in North America that I know of, and it probably will be the only one at this time next year, if we do a show next year. To yeah, you, you, you and I are on the same wavelength. It won't, it won't take much for someone to outbid as price is right style, but, um, but I think, <laughs> I, I, but I, but I, but I think you're, I think you're probably, I think you're probably spot on with a, with a zero prediction. 
<laughs> I hate to I hate to say that, but you know, it's just it's the way the system works, and it unfortunately, you know, it it's yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, we've gone a little longer than I thought. This was great to catch up. Um, hope everyone has a great rest of the week, John. Uh, hope the rest of your week on LinkedIn especially goes better and. Thanks for all you do. And it's great to, to catch up with you. So Same here. Um, it's good to see you as always. All right. Well, well I'm going to go ahead and end the show then. And uh, the episode will be posted shortly. They have a great. great rest of the week, John. Bye. Cheers. You too.